Welcome to Art of the Score, the podcast that explores, demystifies and celebrates some of the greatest soundtracks of all time from the world of film, TV and video games. I'm Andrew Pogson and in each episode we'll be joined by Daniel Golding and Nicholas Buck as we check out a soundtrack we love, break down its main themes, explore what makes the score tick and hopefully impart our love of the world of soundtracks. Andrew? Dan? Is that you? There, there now. Just relax. You've been away for almost two months now. Uh, I had a horrible nightmare. Dreamed you guys recorded an episode without me. It was terrible. Well... You're safe and sound now, back in the good old studio, and here to record episode 12. Episode 12? (laughs) Yes, that's right. In episode 12, we explore the music from one of the icons of 80s pop culture, the 1985 film Back to the Future, directed by Robert Zemeckis and score by the great Alan Silvestri, a wonderfully fruitful director-composer collaboration that still continues to this day. Back to the Future is, at its core, a film that concentrates on a small group of people, yet is presented in a grandiose Hollywood style, and this is only achieved through the brilliance that is Silvestri's wonderful and iconic score. And joining me on this journey back in time to 1985, then to 1955, then again to 1985, anyway, you get the idea. It's composer, arranger, orchestrator, conductor, and playing the part of Marty McFly in our cold open tonight, it's Nicholas Buck to the future. How are you doing, Nick? <laughs> I'm great. Guys, when this piano in front of me plays 88 keys an hour, <laughs> you're going to see some serious shit. <laughs> I love it. So we're back and joining me in the present and possibly if he plays his cards right in the future is writer, critic, university lecturer and guy who is so unchicken as to be vegetarian. It's Dan Golding. Well, thank you very much. It's so good to be here. I've got my almanac, although I'm aware that's for the the, the second episode. Don't cross the streams, Dan. Don't cross. (laughs) I'm looking forward to talking about Back to the Future. I am super excited. It's been like an hour, hour artfully done. Not just out of the score, out of the uh, dialogue acting. reenactment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, we, I don't know if you if you like that at home, um, right on into Twitter at um, at out of the score or on uh, Facebook. You can catch us at out of the score as well. And yeah, tell us if you enjoy these little cold opens. We thought we'd try it out, uh, but. Nick is back in town. It's been a couple of months. We've actually, we decided that we'd wait for him to get back into the country so that we could all hang out in the same room. And um, I think that just makes it a little bit more personal. But Nick, what have you been doing in all this time? Um, first of all, thrilled to be back. Um, I, love, I love you guys. I miss you deeply. <laughs> yeah, I've been doing lots of uh, film kind of uh, conducting projects. I did a, a new, brand new video game show, actually, uh, Metal Gear in concert. Ooh. So fans of the video game series Metal Gear, and especially the music, stay tuned because this show is brand new and hopefully will be touring to a city or country near you in the future. Um, and some Harry Potters along the way and um, 
back in Melbourne for a couple of months. So very, very excited. Yeah, and uh, that means that we're going to take full advantage of Nick, take the chance to record a bunch of episodes. But we're going to kick it off with with Back to the Future, and this really was a this was a real childhood favourite for me, Dan. And mm. I think I saw all three in the movies. Actually, mm. come to think of it, not that we're talking about the second one, but the second was strange because it had a trailer for the third one at the end of the oh, second it did, one didn't it? because yeah. they yeah. Um, they recorded them at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we're of course talking about the first one where they don't go to the future. So <laughs> let's try and make sure we, we keep them all in, in the same same order here. But Dan, why don't you kick it off and, and tell us a little bit about Back to the Future? Absolutely. Well, it's interesting because it's really um, I, I'd say the, the the most successful film of any of the directors that sort of followed in the mold of Steven Spielberg in the 1980s. Um, so this is Robert Zemeckis, who you know has directed a whole bunch of other you know, quite successful films. I'd say probably Contact is my favourite oh, really? film. Yeah, mm. yeah. I did. Look, it's underrated, but, mm. you know. And I didn't realise he was uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. well, mm. and, and so, I mean, it, it's also he's working with Amblin Entertainment at mm. this point in time, and this is sort of the golden age of Amblin. And, you know, Amblin is Steven Spielberg's production company, so he was the, the producer of, of, um, of Back to the Future. Um, but, you know, at this point in time, Amblin is turning out uh, Gremlins, The Goonies, Young Sherlock Holmes, An American Tale, Empire, you know, Empire of the Sun, Spielberg's films, and they, these sorts of things. Because it's my entire childhood. Absolutely. Just read out. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it's really that the, these sorts of films that recent, more nostalgia sort of projects like Super 8 and Stranger Things have sort of been tapping into as well that, that particular era of Amblin Entertainment. But, yeah, this, this sort of, yeah, following in the mold of Steven Spielberg, making these high adventure sort of films, following in the, in the mold of, I think, the high concept I've talked about on some previous episodes, but this idea that it's sort of an instantly communicatable hook mm. to the film and which you get with Back to the Future. I mean, it's such a catchy title. It's it is a of, super catchy title. Yeah. yeah. And it kind of, in its own sense, like, like as far as like grammatically, it doesn't really make sense. No. <laughs> well, it juxtaposes back and future. Yeah. yeah, yeah and that's yeah, why yeah. it's so kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it is, yeah. I mean, because it, it makes most sense in a sentence. Like, it's time to go back to the future, as in we have already returned to the past and now we need to go yes. back. Mm. But but so apparently, um, Sid Scheinberg, who was a, you know, really famous Hollywood executive and was working, you know, way up the chain from back to the future, um, hated the title and made a suggestion for um, a, a spaceman from Pluto. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> which is nailed it, yep. which is atrocious. Yep. And Zemeckis went to Stevens. This is one of the many production myths, I'm sure, around around this film. Hated the film, hated the suggestion so much. But Sid Sheinberg is, you know, a really big player, and he couldn't exactly outright go, "No, your your title is terrible." And so apparently Spielberg and Zemeckis got together and crafted a note like a memo because you know the entire Hollywood system at least in the 80s is built on sending memos, memos. to each other mm. crafted a memo to return saying like haha we all had a good laugh at your excellent hilarious joke, joke <laughs> that, you, that you sent through and kind of intentionally one, mis- yeah, yeah, yeah. misread it and, and embarrassed him into going oh yes that was intentionally a joke That's uh, and so they got to keep back to the future instead but yeah, I mean, it, it comes at an interesting point in film history because, uh, I mean, yeah, like a lot of people talk about films like Star Wars, films like Jaws and Indiana Jones are sort of almost setting the tone for the return to sort of conservatism that took over in, in the 1980s in American politics with Ronald Reagan. Mm. And certainly Back to the Future is really the film that I think is, is the, the outcome of that 
really, in that it, it is a film that sort of looks quite fondly at the past and has been sort of critiqued for that. And um, certainly there's a couple of Reagan jokes in there. Well, there, there's one particular Reagan joke. In yeah. There. Um, and, and Reagan loved this film. Uh, and, really. and, and the other myth is uh, when he saw Back to the Future for the first time, when that joke was played, he actually like, you know, stood up and demanded the, the projectionist stop the film. It, and, that's and, right. And, he liked to rewind it and yeah, play it again. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> this is the, so uh, the listeners can't remember this. Who's a president in 19... 19- 85. Yeah, Ronald yeah. Reagan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's, when, it's when, um, when the 1950s doc um, doesn't believe Marty doc, yeah. that he's yeah, from yeah. the future because he's like, that's completely Oh, ridiculous. that's it. Ronald yeah. Reagan, the actor. Yeah. yeah. And they yeah. even play it up when he, when he first gets into Hill Valley in the, in the 50s. He walks around the corner and there's a billboard that actually has a Reagan film advertised right. on it. Yeah. And then he looks up at the cinema and it's also another Reagan film. So they're yeah. constantly pointing out to the, the audience, hey, remember yeah. our yeah. president, yeah. which their president at the time yeah. was an actor at one point. Totally. And, uh, uh, yeah. and I'm sure, you know, if, if Back to the Future was remade today or rebooted, which honestly, like I just keep expecting it to because every other franchise has Yeah, been. it's true. Donald um, Trump, the yeah. billionaire. Yeah. yeah, exactly. 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 The right? TV show host. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. The golfer. The, the Home Alone cameo. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, like it's 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 quite a fond reminisce of of what you know by the 1980s. A lot of people have been trying to push away from this sort of you know idealized America and trying to trying to change things. And and it does, you know, it's you know, you read about the the formulation of the film, and it's sort of you know the idea of ah, oh, you know, the screenwriter. Uh, whose name Bob Gale? escapes me. Yes, Bob Gale. Thank you very much. Bob Gale. Yeah, you know, talks about formulating the idea for this as sort of like, I was looking at my dad's yearbook and saw him and, you know, I just sort of wondered, would I be friends with him? And, and you know, yeah. sort of, you know, it, it, there's this almost like Oedipal yeah. complex of... I, I met yeah. Bob Gale last year at a screening of this. Oh, here we go. And, um, yeah, he, he literally like said exactly that. And he's mm. just really kind of humble and, you mm. know, just wanted to tell this kind of interesting concept. And mm. I think there were kind of a still amazed at how much over the years it has just blown up and yeah. become this huge popular film. I think it also tells the story of, uh, yes, you know, would I be friends with my, my dad and, and mum when they were my age? But I think it's also to say that nothing changes. Mm. You know, it's sort of to say that the same thing that teenagers are going through in other eras is the same thing that, you know, just fashions change and, and the music changes and, mm. you know, but at the end of the day, there's similar problems and, yeah. you know, challenges and... The I human think, condition is the same. Yeah. And we're yeah. just curious to know. Which I think is a really interesting idea because I, I certainly have never uh, thought about my parents being young and, and that, <laughs> that point in, you know, watching this film in the cinema as a young kid, mm. the thought of, oh... Yeah, I guess my parents were young once. Like that never occurred to me. <laughs> yeah, and this yeah. sort of explores it, which I think is really cool. I mean, I I encounter these films a bit later in life, and so I don't have really a sort of like nostalgic or childhood experience with them. Um, but I think you know, looking at them as an adult, I think what really pulls the film together is actually the performances. I mean, it's, yeah, you know, Michael J. Fox is fantastic. And of course, it um, wasn't Michael J. Fox. No, originally, yeah, it was um, Eric Stoltz. Eric Stoltz, mm. yeah. So there was a, there was a. People may not know this, but there was another Marty McFly mm. actor, Eric Stoltz, and they recorded a whole bunch. They filmed a whole bunch of the film, like five um, weeks worth of footage. Mm. Yeah, and uh, they got to you know looking through dailies, looking through edits, and I think Robert Zemeckis just said, "Look, this is this yeah. is not working. You know, the mm. the chemistry isn't there, or is I can't remember the exact reason. Maybe he wasn't feeling young enough." Um, he was giving 
a very um, dramatic performance. I yeah, think, right. Was, yeah. Of course, Michael J. Fox was big on TV at the time yeah. with, um, was it Family Ties? Yeah, Family Ties. And yeah. so, you know, he played that sort of young, every every man American sort of kid on that TV show and they bring mm. him in and, I mean, it's sort of... It just goes to show that just one single casting change can make all the difference, you know, yeah. with the chemistry on set. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, I just think it, it, it's one of those films that comes together really nicely. And Christopher mm. Lloyd as well um, uh, as Doc is, you know, he's fantastic. It's it's his it's yeah. it's his role, right? Mm. And if you haven't watched this film recently, please go check it out. I mean, it's mm. this this podcast. I th- always think these podcasts are better if you've seen the film recently, or if you intend to watch the film after this. I think also works. But check out how great. The pacing is on this film. It goes along at not just 88 miles yeah. an hour. It goes along at a million miles an hour and it there is no wasted dialogue. Every single thing that happens at the start of the film, like random stuff like save the clock tower, things that just in any other film would just be stuff that happens mm. and then they move forward with the plot. Every element of it has a payoff later yeah. and it's the most tightly edited script I think certainly from that era as well. There's a lot of bloat in some of those films from from that time. Mm. And uh, yeah, this is just sharp. Mm. Everything about it is fast. It's perfect. Yeah, it is. <laughs> sure, why not? I do. Actually, it is, it is amazing. And I, I wanted to touch on the fact that this is the uh, second film that um, Zemeckis and Silvestri worked on. And um, important noting this because the first film was Romancing the Stone. And... Uh, it had a very different score on it. And this uh, Back to the Future score is the first time that Silvestri was asked to do an orchestral score. I think that's really important to know because if we just have a listen to the previous film, um, um, if you allow me to play some non-Back to the Future music before we actually start the episode or start the, start the analysis. And um, here is uh, Silvestri's, um, I guess, main theme uh, to Romancing the Stone. Now, I know you thought the rest of the film feels really 80s, but this is in somehow even (laughs) more 80s in some weird way. Yeah, it feels like the opening theme song to one of those 80s TV shows, like Family Matters or something. Yeah, it could be a TV theme, 100%. And what I think is also interesting about this, because we're about to look at uh, Back to the Future, is that there is a lot of jazz in this. Mm. If I just turn this up from here, check it out from... Okay, and in my favourite bit here. Woo! Oh, yeah. How great is that? That's a great... I don't know. I hate I, it and love it all at the same time. No, I love it. I love it. It's, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, and as a sax player, I in the 80s, um, yeah. just learning, I learnt that tune and really? I was so happy with myself. It's just such a great sax tune. Wow. Anyway, that's where, that's where Sylvester is coming from. And yeah. I read online um, an article with uh, Steven Spielberg saying that he hated that score. He thought it was a terrible idea for that film, didn't like it at all. And so when uh, Zemeckis is doing an, an emblem film mm. and, you know, he gets Sylvester out again, I think, you know, Spielberg was really worried 
that, it. yeah, that sort you know, Sylvester it, was was like a one note guy doing this sort of sort of soundtrack. And but it, Remains in the Stone was a conscious decision to get away from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, totally, you know, totally. Um, but I think because you know Spielberg really wanted to get get to that sort of more high adventure sort of you know like like Raiders yeah. in a wi- weird way. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that is this guy even able to do an orchestral score? So um, you end up you know, requesting it from me. And I think he really hits it out of the park. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. So, Nick, now that we've spoken about romancing (laughs) the stone. (laughs) On to um, the future. Yeah, on to the back of the future. um, Let's let's check out the main themes and stuff. What do you you got for us? Yeah, but before I talk about anything, we've got to see what we're dealing with here. And this has to be, I mean, one of the greatest film themes of all time. Oh, yeah. And you couldn't get a more stark contrast to Romancing the Stone, <laughs> yeah. could you? I mean, it's it's night and day. Where did that come from? I mean, well, it's... I, um, I mean, before I start talking about the score, I had the great pleasure of meeting Alan Silvestri. Because um, he's meeting everyone, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the same event. Some name dropping. Uh, I will name it. This is the same event where I met Bob Gale, Christopher Lloyd, oh who plays um, Strickland. Oh yeah, that um, guy, James Tolkien. Yeah, and uh, I, I was because I was conducting the score. I think in Melbourne, not not long after this. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so I went to one of the, the rehearsals in New York where David Newman was conducting, and Alan Sylvester was there. And I, you know, introduced myself and I asked him basically about this score. And I actually met his lovely wife Sandra, and she <laughs> actually told me more about it than almost Alan did, which was that uh, according to her, he was the most complete nervous wreck on this film. So worried about deadlines, about screwing up, that he was, in her words, almost like throwing up every morning. Yeah, right. (laughs) Such was the pressure to deliver. And, I mean, he is a composer who, as far as film scoring goes, really self taught himself you mm-hmm. know almost out of a book did some tv work you know um for a long time in a, on a cop show called chips but like you said this was his first orchestral score and i, I don't know where it came from but it is incredible mm. and he obviously worked incredibly hard to get to where where the film score just delivered uh, so much excitement and action and heart and everything. It's sort of there's like a, he's been doing it for years. There's a real sophistication to the writing as well, which I was surprised by because I think, you know, in my memory, because, uh, you know, this is not one of the scores that I listen to frequently myself. And I think I'd sort of just remember the main theme and gone, oh, yeah, like it's got a good theme. But, you know, like actually there's a lot of depth to this score. I'm really impressed by it. Yeah, and, the, 
then there is actually great depth out of singular, very singular and simple ideas. And mm. I think that's also why it makes it it's so kind of rewarding mm. and fantastic. So look, let, let's start with this main theme. It's in two main parts and both are very recognizable whenever they are heard. Uh, one of the score's great strengths is that you can kind of almost hear any chunk of it in isolation go within a few seconds. Yep, that's Back to the Future. Mm. So he starts off with his main three note theme. Okay, simple enough. It's a descending major fifth followed by an ascending tritone. And I think musically, this sums up exactly what the film is. We start somewhere, we go back in time, and then we've screwed something up and we don't quite get back to where we started. (laughs) It's almost like that is Back to the Future Mm. in those three notes. Absolutely. I've got another little take on why this works as well, is that the tritone... You know, that, that third note. So, you go, da, 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 that note wants to go somewhere and it creates forward momentum. Mm. Um, so, whenever it's played, it's, it's asking a question and Sweet. it gets answered every time. So, that always that forward momentum because that's this film. This film is always moving forward. Time is moving forward, mm. even though they're going backwards. <laughs> and, and they're always out of time. Mm. Always out of time. Like, I've never seen people with a time machine run out of time so quickly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, you know, I think that this score is always pushing forward. It's always, Mm. you know, what's next, what's next, what's next, you know. And it's that tritone. It's that um, da-da-da, where's it going? La-da-da-da. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. If I just put some harmony under this, you know, it has moments of, of tension and resolution. But like you said, it is going somewhere, but it never... It never arrives no. any, anywhere. I mean, have, have a listen. We've sort of got... I'll just pull out the chords here. All right. So, bold statement followed by a question. Another question. Sort of an answer, but that is a suspended chord. Yeah. Okay, it's not... Doesn't feel finished. Yeah. It's sort of up in the air. So it's asking a question and Mm. then it sort of asks a slightly different question. Again, another suspension. Mm. You know, where are we going? Then, and this is what I guess we'll call the the second part of the main theme, Mm. is what I like to really say is kind of like the answer to that question. Yep. And check out the bass line because oh, it, it just goes, it goes this whole kind of passage up and then just retreats back down. It's mm-hmm. always moving. It's that bit at the end there that still a question. Almost. It's yeah, it is. Yeah, it doesn't. It never actually finishes with a ta-da. We're done. Mm. All of those chords at the end there. I'm hearing "Romance in the Stone." I'm hearing those jazz chords and you know that sort of rich jazz harmony mm. in there. And and I mean, do you guys know if Zemeckis was he? Did he study Sylvester? jazz? Oh, so, so Zemeckis, sorry. <laughs> Sylvester, did he study jazz? Yeah, he, I think he's like a jazz guitarist. Well, there we go. Yeah, so, I mean, it's totally in the it. DNA. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, the chords are either mm. they're like sevenths or sus or kind of polychords. Yeah. Just here. Yeah, this, this kind of bit yeah. here. It sounds like it could be a Pat Metheny tune. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, that, that's... 
interesting to draw that out though because I mean that's a point that we've made mm. a lot through the John Williams episodes that we've done is you know his use of jazz chords and voicings which you know uh, is missing in film music texture. these days no I was gonna <laughs> I, no I was gonna make that exact point yeah. is that you know with a lot of you know music as as much as I defend the often maligned Hans Zimmer you know his 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 harmony is, is just not that complicated yeah you're more likely to get something like yeah, yeah, kind of very pop. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I, I love that bit. And um, actually, Nick, uh, we we spoke about this earlier, and maybe I'm I'm jumping this on you, but that last little bit of the, I guess, the second melody or the B melody, whatever we want to call it, has an very interesting little moment of counterpoint and um, counterpoint being two separate melodies sort of I guess working off each other are you able to sort of show us how that works yeah that so bit? you know um, bah, 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 boom, you know, trumpets leading that we get these horns that have I guess continue the melody sorry my bad chords but you get the idea mm. but above is this really kind of groovy kind of like string line And, yeah. and when they kind of fuse together, it's really kind of exciting because one's mm. kind of going down and the other one's sort of soaring up. Yeah. It's, it's, the rest of the theme doesn't really have that counterpoint. It's yeah. more kind of, like kind of orchestral stabs in the background and yeah, just sort yeah. of the chords sitting there. And it's, yeah, they sort of divulge in different directions as if we're sort of still unsure where time is taking us. Mm. Mm. And I think, yeah, one of the most important chords is the very last one. Uh, okay, it's a B major chord, mm. but it's not... Have a listen to the bass note. It's not... Oh, it's it's the seventh of the chord. Mm. It's this A. So it's really kind of it's like resolution, but but still asking a question. And yeah, that's, that's yeah endemic in this in this film. Yeah, and look, while we're talking about these three notes at the start, um, I mean, I'm sure you guys can. What do you, what do you guys reckon that sounds like? Pick, pick me another film TV show. The Simpsons. The Simpsons. Simpsons. Yep. 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 You know, it's very much in that DNA. Yep. Or West Side Story. Yep. Yep. West Side Maria. Story. Maria. Yeah, yep. same. It's the exact same melody, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. La, da, da. What other things? Um, right into us, guys. If, if you can think of something yeah. else that exploits mm. a tritone this well, mm. um, I want to hear it. So, look, this theme, though, is ex- extremely versatile. And Silvestri's genius is that he basically just uh, gives it around to, to so many different parts of the orchestra and treats it like this sort of singular light motif. It doesn't really n- represent anything specific, but it really is treated to some, some great examples. So, I want to play the very first time in the film we get any score, and it's this bit of music. So again, just the three notes, quite ominous. And I, I, I don't know you guys, I hear shades of like Horner's Star Trek in there. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep, yeah. totally. Um, yep. And so again, the, the, the play on the tritones. Yep. You know, and it's almost like that moment of revelation where mm. there's a, a starship out in space. This is our little funky DeLorean <laughs> wheeling out of smo- you know, dry ice on the back of a van. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah. Um, and did you guys hear that they originally wanted to make the time machine a fridge? <laughs> yes, I did. Really? Yeah, I did. yeah. They yeah. Really, originally wanted to make it a fridge, mm. and then they realised, oh, he's going to have to get around in it. So yeah. <laughs> um, they then they then um, wrote in a DeLorean because 
partly because there's nothing more 80s than a DeLorean, but <laughs> but also because it looks like the most like a spaceship. Mm. And so then they could have that that great joke in the 50s where, you know, he arrives and it looks like a spaceship. But, yeah. you know, that, that reveal of the DeLorean is... You know, really, the it's it's presented in a space way, and and mm. and like you just said, it's you know Star Trek vibe as it comes out. Yeah, mm. and it's mm. gone from a suburban mm. film vibe, which really all we get, you know, we get high schools and stuff in mm. the first opening scenes, you know, suburban houses. All of a sudden, yep. where oh, that's right, this film's a sci-fi at the yeah. same mm. time. We we don't want to touch on the fact that there's a teenager at high school meeting up with an old man in a car park at 1am. Do we want to touch on that? Uh, Let's not. But I mean, one, one of the reasons why I think the, I mean, the whole score is built around that, that tritone really, is, I mean, in the way that it works, uh, you know, it's just that the, the, the tritone is the furthest away from the, the octave. Yeah. It's the, yes. the, pretty much the direct middle, right? It's the middle. It's exactly yeah. The, the middle. Yeah. Mm, so, absolutely. it you know, you can't get two sounds Further, f- further apart, yeah, yep. yeah, and, and talk about you know screwing with something. Um, mm. We're screwing with time, here, and there's so. a lot of um, extended techniques that go on during that. So, um, really, the first notes that we actually hear in this whole score are, are like extended techniques, both with um, high string, high vibes strings, and, and bowed percussion, yeah. And stuff. But, so, using a bow on like a, I, I assume on cymbals yeah. and, and cro- crotale. How do you say them? Crotale. Cro- oh, I say crotales. Crotales. Um, li- li- little um, little metal discs that you um, use a, a violin in bow mm. to rub against and it gives you that really screechy high sound and all of that is happening first before we get some actual notes um, mm. in there so it's sort of like little mysterious and creepy vibe mm. Mm. so look with this two uh, three note motif I'm just going to jump through a couple of examples of yeah, how it's treated quite differently here's a performance where it's really kind of fugal like different instruments commenting on the on the three note theme angsty <laughs> then we get a really strained and even more angsty performance in this sort of Twin Pines Mall sequence check this out and uh, all I think of there is that sort of when we talked about Indiana Jones and him being sort of oppressed by mm. by machinery and stuff, it's a very similar thing here where it's really kind of the theme is being kind of crushed and really trying to, it's like screaming out of the texture, help, help. Mm. And is that in the bit where the, the Libyans um, are driving around the car park? Is that that scene? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. you know, it's like it's it's starting to earn its stripes. Yeah, right. Scene. We're, mm. we're hearing bits of it and it's working its way up slowly and slowly. Then it starts to gather a bit of strength. And uh, becomes a little bit more heroic, and um, yeah, have a listen. Oh yeah, you know, you know what I like about that cue is that it actually gives time, 
like Silvestri gives time for the movie to do its lines mm. during that. So he he almost is the I won't say the punchline, but he is answering the dialogue each time because there's action, 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 and then you know um, the melody's playing, and then it pauses for just a moment while something happens. Yeah, and then it continues again, and it's actually the line. Um, let's see if you bastards can do 90 or whatever it is that the line is yes. yeah and then it explodes into the resolution of the theme which is that b theme that mm. and mm. for me it's like you know it's the first high five moment of the film yeah. you know mm. <laughs> and in doing so in giving way for the bits of dialogue or, or mm. a cap to the libyans with their rocket launcher or something <laughs> yeah. um it also it, it it breaks up the music so it's it gives that sense of it it's trying to get up it's trying to get up and then finally yeah. when we get that yeah but it's like Oh, yeah, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's done it. So, yeah, and he floors, you know, puts his pedal to the to yeah. the metal, and um, it goes flying. And actually, I wanted to talk about how this theme gains momentum during those bits. Before, sorry, before you move on, uh, Nick, because I know you got a lot of examples here. But when we're talking about that ex- that car park acceleration, because really he's burning around, he's going through gears. Yep. You know, through it, and I think this this theme goes through the gears in a mm. rhythmic way. Um, so the the rhythmic the rhythm of the of the melody starts off as um, as as two beat notes, either minims or half notes, depending which part of the world you come from. <laughs> and so they're quite slow. But if I if I click some uh, some time here, we go la da da. So it's quite mm. you know it's slow. There's not. Anything moving there, but a la da da da. Now it's faster. Yeah. But a la da 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 da, and now it's all on the beat. And it did. It, you know, each time it's accelerating. Every time yeah. it's presented, mm. and it feels like the the melody is going through gear changes. Mm. It's like it's, it's picking up the pace. Just yeah. Like it's accelerating, then breathing, then mm. change gear, then accelerating, then breathing, and then the release of just absolutely flooring it in fifth gear is the ba da la da da da. You know, mm. it just so it works so well in with, this. With what's absolutely Absolutely. Yeah. Well, then we've gone back in time. <laughs> so um, in come the muted trumpets and we're treated to quite a different performance of this. It's like the theme is lost <laughs> and he doesn't know where he is, just like Marty. It's very different, isn't it? It's very mm. different. It's very different. What, what do you think the um, the muted trumpet, which plays that melody there, what do you think that sort of... Why have they chosen muted trumpet, do you think, in that moment? Well, I mean, that, that particular scene is when he kind of... He comes out of the car dressed in his, like, Martian outfit. <laughs> and I think it's some alien. Um, but almost an identical presentation is used when uh, a couple of scenes later when he's walking around the town square in the 50s. Mm, he picks right. up a, I think he picks up a newspaper and he's just like, what's going on here? Yeah, it's yeah. muted trumpet again. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, the muted trumpet, I mean, is, you know, that sort of uh, Miles Davis, you know, era Lonely. of oh, mod- yeah. modal jazz. And yeah, I mean, yeah, you yeah. know, I mean, it, that, that was the last time really a, a mute on a brass instrument was really any part of popular culture, right? I well, yeah, true. So, I mean, possibly. <laughs> I mean, I, I wondered whether, it, you know, we spoke about scores with the lone trumpet without yeah. the mute in it and that it often is a, a military mm. idea. Obviously, Marty's not part of the military here. <laughs> Does the mute make him a the hero but just a guy? Mm. 
is that maybe what it's what it effect yeah. it's having on there? Oh, well, well I, I know for a fact that the original version of some of these scenes were done with an unmuted trumpet, mm. and oh. Back to the Future had a bit of a weird scoring schedule where when they reshot some things with my with sorry Michael J. Fox, Sylvester got a chance to do some rescoring, and um, some of the things were basically making things less dramatic and just I know in this particular bit putting a mute in was one of the changes I mean maybe it's him the mute is like kind of it's like a, it congests the sound yeah. maybe it's you know, it, it lacks yeah. clarity like an open trumpet and just like Marty it adds into you know, yeah, ideas it, of confusion and stuff it, like it that it lacks that same boldness that a solo yeah. trumpet would normally have and he's, yeah. that he's just had escaping the Libyans woohoo yeah. and I was like what the <laughs> and I guess it's he's just he's by himself now mm. He, um, you know, he's a teenager. He's just gone back into a time where he doesn't know anyone. He's got no friends. Mm. That triumphant brass fanfare of, that leads him into 1955. Mm. And now it's muted. It's he's small. He's singular. He's very, um, you know, well, he can be hurt. Mm. You know, then they, the gun comes and uh, <laughs> the farmer yeah. comes out. But well, yeah. one, one other thing that I've been noticing throughout all, well, a few of these examples, and maybe it'll change with the, the later ones, but that in the moments of triumph, the theme seems to be played in octaves. Um, so, oh, yep. you know, with a, with, a, with a trumpet playing the thing and then maybe and the a horn's helping horn out underneath, yeah, yeah, you know, an octave is, below. Yeah. And that gives it a real sort of power, but it's a kind of singular power because it's not like the brass instruments are playing harmony and, and fattening the sound. They're just making it really direct. Yeah, exactly. And so... <clears throat> unlike, I don't know, like a, a Star Wars theme where the force theme might be more harmonized, for example. And then if you play that with just a solo instrument, it sounds really weak regardless of what the solo instrument is because you're used to hearing it more fully yep. orchestrated. Here, maybe because it is not really harmonized, it's only harmonized in octaves, That to, to get that more weak sound, you need to change the instrument a lot more than the yeah. melody. I, yeah, that's interesting. Well, I, I mean, the next example is where he, the first time we hear it presented on literally just a solo instrument right. by itself. Mm. And it really, to me, has a very fateful kind of vibe. And this is where Marty gets hit by the car and then ends up in his mum's bed. Similar to our opening scene. Yeah, the, almost exactly <laughs> yeah. the same as our opening. Yes, you know, exactly. Probably yeah. not as good, but... Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, and interestingly, in this cue, we then, it's the first time we hear this theme played on a woodwind mm. instrument. And again, it takes on a more sort of touch of destiny mm. kind of element to it. So let's, let's have a listen. So there's a fateful statement on French horn. Also the first female character. Gets it. And you get you get the B theme in there that well, at least little excerpts of it. But played almost like a music box. Mm. Yeah, because yeah, you're in a in a 
girl's room, mm. you know. So mm. there's there's that sort there's of a delicate music box. lightness to it. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Interestingly, um, what happened with that scene is we actually took this podcast back in time and showed it to Robert Zemeckis when he was planning this film, and he decided that that scene would actually be good to to be put in 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 the film. Um, so you know, there's a question about authorship yeah, as to whether right. we're actually yeah, the authors yeah. of of you know the, yeah. the art of the score yeah. is, should really be credited. No, with. that's perfect, Dan. Yep. <laughs> when do the royalties start coming in? Uh, I've been getting them. <laughs> You've been getting them in the future? Yeah. <laughs> and look, throughout the film, like what we've sort of heard so far is sort of, you know, the, the big action things, the strain things, we haven't heard it really being treated romantically yet. And I mean, to be honest, there's, there's no really romance in the film until much later. Thank God. Uh, <laughs> thank God. <laughs> um, but when George finally biffs Biff, and um, are you okay? Yeah, you yeah. Know, that, that great line. <laughs> Lorraine takes his hand and Sylvester finally. And it's a real kind of beautiful moment of sort of sweetness um, that we get it performed romantically and sort of tenderly on strings. Still asking a question at the end. Just get, everything <laughs> just gets resolves. interrupted, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. And actually, if you um, Nick, if you just play it from the the beginning again, I am forever proven correct on this podcast. I've decided because <laughs> we start with two wind instruments, perfectly depicting. You know, uh, actually, just just press play. There it is. There, clarinet for the boy, boy, <laughs> and flute for the girl. Aww. Lovely. <laughs> Um, That's very insightful, Andy. Yeah, so, you know, I, I made a very... I think it was episode one. I made that bold yeah, claim yeah, of the clarinet right. being the boy, and it keeps on becoming a thing every time. And I think so. I heard Darth Vader's theme. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. How dare you? It, that it, was yeah. correct. It's, a, it's, a, it's the boy in Peter and the Wolf, isn't it? Clarinet? Um, no, no, the boy in um, Peter and the Wolf, Peter, is uh, the strings. Oh, right. Oh, the yeah. cat's the clarinet. The cat okay, is the clarinet. sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, yeah. look, yeah. yeah. So it's just Prokofiev proving you wrong. Yeah, yeah. Andrew, let's be honest. Darth Vader came down from Planet Vulcan last night yeah. and told you to, to say that or he'll melt your brain. Absolutely. Right? Oh, I, there, there were a few times, we were talking about this before we pressed record, that there was a few times that this movie becomes very self-aware mm. and um, takes real moments to sort of wink at the audience. And that is certainly one of them. We're throwing out a Darth Vader and a um, Star Trek reference. It's 1985. You know, these things are like right in the everyone's mind. So, mm. yeah, anyway. So, look, taking uh, let, let's move on from the main theme. We'll, we'll come back to it a bit later. But a very close relationship of this main Back to the Future theme is, I guess, what we'd call Marty's theme or Marty's motive. And it's very closely related, but I guess we describe it as more wholesome. And basically because it eschews that uh, the tritone in favor of rising up to a fourth. So, where we might once have had a... We now get right, as a little kind of motive presented for Marty. And it's mm. really, um, you know, it's built up of a fourth and a fifth. You know, it's very sort of Americana. It's almost been sort of, yeah, got shades of that kind of comfortable, normal life. Mm. Yeah, it's very, very pure. And we've spoken about these intervals before as being called perfect. And, mm. you know, that using two perfect intervals makes it, yeah, a... a 
a, a purity or an innocence, mm. I guess. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And that sort of harmony um, right at the end there, I mean, that's very Copeland. Yeah, just, yeah, sort of like sus- suspended force mm. and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but look, yeah, let's, this happens a couple of times when Marty writes a letter to Doc. So, you know, it's, it's very kind of personal. There's that relationship mm. element. And again, when he, um, uh, when things are kind of, safe at the end when Doc gets saved and oh sorry well by himself with a bulletproof vest mm. and uh, when Marty gets his 4x4 at the very end it's sort of it's a comfort of home and, and you can really feel that in the music I just think of it there. It almost reminds me of that opening scene of Saving Private Ryan. Oh, you know, yeah. we're just sort of standing over, you know, the the, the grave of mm. fallen soldiers, mm. you know, the American flag. It really, yeah, it has that. Mm. Um, uh, I can't think of the word. Yeah, it is. It's, yeah. it's a type of Americana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Mm. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I also think the main theme has got. A, I mean, that sort of like the the twiddly bits, you know, the, where yeah. it moves between two notes. The da 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 da, da like that is a very Americana sort of fanfare to me. Yeah. But I mean, I think just listening to that cue as well. One of the things that I've always liked about this score as well is the, like, you know, you can hear them breathing. You can you can hear the brass in particular, like yeah, they're taking a breath there. Yeah. That's totally missing from most modern film film music as well, yeah. which I I don't know, just adds a real humanness. And it's a welcome music. relief from the or not a welcome, it's a relief from some of the intense action yeah. that has often gone gone yep. before in this film. Now let's move on to one of the to me like sums up Back to the Future as well. In fact, to the point that when we uh, did this film live, mm. many people don't know, the, the live in concert version of Back to the Future has extra music yeah, because it's actually quite a short score. It's about 42 minutes of score. Mm. And so what they decided was to go back and add some little extra bits. But in the, the, the concert presentation, it starts with what we'll call the time motif. And people got the giggles, literally because when you hear it, you're like, oh, that's Back to the Future. Mm. That's that sound. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's this one. It's magic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There, there is. Uh, even though you know, it's about science the entire mm. time. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's showing that little bit of mm. magic fairy dust being sprinkled onto things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, it's it's there's there's a Celeste in there. You mm. know, very popular in Harry Potter mm. and mm. other other magical things. Uh, a bit of harp, bit of piano, mm. but again, he's using these these tritone chords to really do that harmony. You know. So it, what what we're talking about here is we've got three uh, sorry two chords with triads and you play those really slowly and then yep and then the other one so these are a tritone apart as well just like yeah. the the main melody and if you play them really fast um, then you uh, well not quite fast like that <laughs> but you, you play the individual notes really fast then yeah. you have your little theme yeah hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. It's, it's cool, isn't it? Yeah, I love it. Um, and to be honest, um, I played the the earlier DeLorean reveal cue where we hear the the first instance of the bum bum bum. But the thing you actually hear before that is actually this this time motive. Check it out. Before the car is revealed, we, we get that there. And then it moves in. And it is magic. I mean, as you said before, I mean, like, if you take the sort of character archetypes of Doc and Marty, I mean, it's, it's, it's um, King Arthur and, and um, Merlin, like the sort of older, yeah, sure. older, older magician advisor sort of character. Mm. That, it's, you know, time-tested Yep. characters that work really yep. well here yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's also it's very again with this trailer thing it's very indecisive it's like pick yeah. a key mm. <laughs> yeah. you know it's like we can't you know yeah um, and really none of them all- feel like home none no. of them feel like you've returned home no. at any point mm-hmm. so Sylvester develops this a bit in the uh, in the next queue and you'll you really hear it get a, a workout here It's almost like it's saying, what is this? What is this? <laughs> what is this? What is this? You know, Doc, what, 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 what the hell you got, got here? Like, you're crazy, man. Just slow down, slow down. Yeah, yeah. It really adds to that kind of bumbly kind of chaos. And it's, it's not really strictly this time motive, but the harmony language that, he's, that we're kind of talking about here gets developed a bit in the clock tower sequence, um, which is really kind of cool. Just have a, have, a, have a listen to what's going on here, at least harmonically. It's all the same chords again. Yeah, um, but then yeah, but they're not playing each you know note individually like yeah. that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Get, getting a workout. That's cool. That's great. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, again, a very simple idea and one that just instantly says says Back to the Future. Mm. Mm. Now, speaking of Crazy Doc, he gets sort of his own. I wouldn't really call it a theme, um, but certainly a motif and mm. a language, which again is derived from this. We're going to sound like a broken record. This tritone stuff. <laughs> mm. But what Sylvester does is make it very. I'm going to say the word here, bumbling in nature. It's just like him. It's all a bit crazy. It's scatterbrained and it's it's very indecisive. You know, I'm... I'm Actually, it's throughout this entire score and I've stopped myself from saying it until this moment. But there are endless turning wheels in this in this score. Things in motion, things mm. spinning around and um, represented by by melody. And you've got this pop 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 You know, it's turning around and in in this instance, um, with the dock, it's 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 thoughts whirling around his head. Yep. You know, it's It's the, his brain working faster than he's 
speech almost. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And then you know, in other times through the film, it's the it's the car wheels, it's the engine working, it's the or it's the clocks, you know, mm. um, moving forward. And uh, yeah, but that's that's a slightly different version of of a wheel turning. It's someone sort of the mind cogs mm. ticking over there, which yep. mm. yeah, I think really helps that. But the you know, it's a jagged melody. It's a melody that sort of pops out. It's it's short and sharpened, yeah. and, yeah. and um, it's not nicely contoured. So and the instrumentation is mm. really it's really wacky. Yeah. It's like he's, it's like a musical representation of his hair. You know, it's yeah. just like fingers. Are, in they, the are they trombones that are moving, sliding? Yeah. So those. and and they they they're scored a semitone apart, and one and one slides up to the note that the previous person have, and they're just like Great. interlocking like this. Great. Yeah. yeah. And it's really kind of just yeah loony. Nice. And when he comes back at the very end of the film, it's even more cartoonish. Just have a listen to like the xylophones and stuff here. <laughs> and I also think there's a there is a relentless um, nature to it. Like it doesn't stop to breathe. This one, mm. and I think the doc doesn't stop to breathe. Whenever he's on screen, he's just he's talking at a million miles an hour. Maybe there's a few times mm. where he does take a little moment to, to breathe, but it's movement, you know? It's yeah. that, like I'm, I'm not stopping. You know what a lot of this music reminds me of actually is the Russian piece of music from, from 1927, um, Iron Foundry uh, by oh, Mosolov. Mos- it's a great piece of music. I, I don't, don't know I don't that piece or that composer. Wow. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> well, Mosolov. Well, yeah, my, my, uh, Alexander Mosolov and it's um, Soviet futurist music and it's futurist because there is not a note. There is a single note of consonants in this piece and it is the final one <laughs> and everything before then is and it's quite a short piece it's about uh, I think about yeah. two three four minutes maybe max um, and it's just that you know it's meant to represent a factory and yeah so right. it has exactly that sort of you know cogs turning yeah 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 mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And, and yeah and that sounds quite Elfman-esque as well yeah yes. yeah um, you're right yep. I mean this this I mean yeah, sort of Beetlejuicey bit, kind of all like you know some of the weird Joker music. Mm. It's it's quite kind of cartoonish in nature. And we actually we we had similar music with um, our Batman episode, mm. uh, where he's in the factory, isn't it? Where yeah. it's just very literal factory music. Yep. But yeah, and you might hear those da 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 little lines at the end of that cue. Um, <clears throat> they're based on what we call the octatonic scale, which a lot of this action music has, and it's so fantastic because it really doesn't feel like it's major or minor it's kind of really weird Uh, and just to explain octatonic scale is basically where the steps alternate between a half step semitone and a whole step a tone so it'd be like rather than a major scale or a minor scale it's like this sort of there's a there's a potential a Middle Eastern Arabian vibe in there. A little bit, little yeah. bit, you know. Mm. It's like just when mm. you've got to work that out, it sort of sours mm. a bit and then it he becomes happy. Then yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I had a teacher, in, um, Ira Newborn, who did uh, the score to Planes, Trains and Automobiles. Oh, and he uh, said, yep. this is the best scale for writing music that 
just doesn't know where it wants to go and just sort of never yeah. settles. And he, he says, you can just cycle on this scale for like 20 minutes. It mm. just sounds like really interesting, crazy action music. Yeah. <laughs> mm. yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah, well. And once again, it's another, it's another great scale to use for jazz improvisers. Right. Because it allows you to move outside of a key and create forward momentum through that non-resolution. Mm. So without getting too technical with it. But yeah, it's a, a octatonic, great, great scale. Great mm. scale. Mm. Before we move on from the doc, I just have to um, re- revive the reputation of Sid Scheinberg a little bit before with his, <laughs> with his, with his terrible addition uh, or the suggestion of the name. He'd made, you know, a, a few very positive changes um, to the film, um, but all small ones. But his best, I think, was that in the original script, it was supposed to be Professor Brown and he suggested calling him Doc Brown instead. Uh, Oh, that's Sid great. did? Yeah, yeah, Sid did. Oh, wow. Yep. So, <laughs> professor! <laughs> professor! Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Knocked that one out of the park. Yeah. 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 Not so much with the title. Anyway. <laughs> now, the only other real little motif in this film is, we could call it either like the Biff motif or uh, possibly just like a general suspense idea that Silvestri has. And it's this sort of eight-note chromatic figure. Uh, it's used in the skateboard chase and also a few times when Biff is just doing annoying stuff (laughs) let's have a listen here so it's just that real kind of low driving you know piano idea Etc. 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 Is that, that um, used in the skateboard moment in the uh, film? That, what I've just played you is a yes. bit in the skateboard. Yeah. Case. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, and you might sort of recognise it here, where Biff is sort of, you know, he's like twisting George's arm and sort mm. of uh, accosting him in the car. And sort of gets layered up and layered up. God, they're just they're just running out of time. Yeah. Like all of that is, you know, the clock's ticking. You can yeah. hear it the you know the yeah. whole time. All I hear is tick tick tick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's very simple, but it's it's mm. so it's so effective, isn't it? It's really mm. fantastic. Uh, just before we move on to talk about the clock tower, uh, I just want to mention this great bit which um, Silvestri wrote for the, I guess, the impending arrival of the Libyans <laughs> in, in this opening scene. The Libyans. I don't know if you can make a film like that no. these days. If, if, if this film was rebooted, uh, that would not be in it. <laughs> yeah. But it's this great kind of militaristic kind of danger motif. But I'm going to play, play straight after a bit of his music for Predator, which is a few years later, and you'll really hear the same militaristic vibe coming in. And at the end of the Predator queue, he has what I like to call the uh, the sort of horrific revelation music. Uh, it just sounds like, oh, my God. It's that, it's that kind of music that makes you say that. You'll hear a bit of, of the Predator version and then going back into Back to the Future of where uh, Marty sees Doc sort of, you know, has just been shot. And it's a very similar, similar idea. So check, check it out. Predator. 
yeah, you know, that sort of <gasps> something bad's happened and then boom, we're launched mm. into action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. very similar moments happen in Predator where we sort of see <gasps> a body that's been sort of, you know, gutted and blood, yep. f- you know, and then uh, guys rip out their machine guns and start yeah, pummeling the forest. Loose. Yeah, so yeah. it's very, very similar kind of stuff. When I hear that theme, I can only think of that big, massive guy with the minigun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. All. He just unloads <laughs> it onto the entire bush. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One great, of the, for, once again, for a young boy, yeah. <laughs> that was one of the greatest scenes in movie history. <laughs> <It's awesome. laughs> now, the last bit of talking about this score before we move on to the, I guess the crucial songs of the of, of the film. Uh, we've got to talk about the clock tower sequence, which, in my opinion, is one of the greatest film and film music, I guess, kind of combinations in in history. It's, it's sort of this eight to ten minute long cue, which just incorporates everything that's been introduced to the film and is so spot on precise. It's it's really a, a thing of magic. It is so exciting. I mean, you re- conducted this for the for us for the MSO. And this was easily, I mean, look, the whole movie is great and the, the vibe in the audience is great. This is one of the most, and now it is pun intended, electrifying moments. Um, <laughs> where, it's shocking. Yeah, it's shocking, yeah. No, That's it, a pun as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Positively. Positively shocking. Positively shocking. Uh, or shouldn't it be negatively? Yeah. Yeah, right. no, you, you got, I knew where you're going. Anyway, um, the... <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm switching off. Yeah, yeah okay, good. It was just such an exciting moment because this part of the movie is so beautifully cut. It's like amazing because there's actually quite a complicated thing going on. You know, if yeah. you think about the fact that, you know, um, Doc is up on the, the tower trying to connect things, there's action happening just up the street. There's a lot of little things happening all at the same time. And this is so beautifully edited. So, you know exactly what's happening and the score just follows it. Beautifully, and this would nowhere. Ne- I mean, this is not the exciting scene at the end of the day. There's a a lightning bolt hitting the wire, and a car goes over. It. Like, there's nothing else. <laughs> and this score makes it feel like it is the most heart stopping moment yeah. throughout the whole film. It's great. And, and what is great is that it's constantly got the main Back to the Future theme trying to get to that final dum ba da ba bum bum bum, yeah, and right. it goes through so many different versions. And every time it kind of builds a bit of momentum. It- always, always, always gets cut off by a piece of the drama. Mm. And let me just play you through a few because it's, it's, it's fantastic. So here we get, I guess, a more sort of optimistic military sort of work in progress kind of version. And it gets cut off when Doc discovers that Marty put a letter about the future in, right. his, in, yep. in his pocket. And that thing kind of continues, then it starts becoming a bit more determined, a bit more resolute, and then gets cut off by literally the cable snapping (laughs) and and Doc freaking out. So it's not quite as optimistically military.
<laughs> Something's going wrong. And you've got those um, those mallet percussions at the top there with a ringing bell. Is that when the bell goes off on in Marty's car, the uh, alarm clock? No. It's oh, it's not. not. No, that's that, that's a bit later. Oh, that's, okay. That's sort of, but it, it does sound there. that sort of like there's a... Mm. You're, once again, you're running out of time. There's an, mm. an alarm has yep. gone off. Yeah. And the, ne- the next bit is it's like super tense, under oppression, and this time it gets cut off by the clock striking. We've got sort of four minutes left to their little countdown. Stakes are increasing. Again, all very sort of similar similar mm. effects with those mm. you know, you know, xylophone and stuff. Um, and then this is this is uh, I love this this bit where it becomes a bit more positive, heroic, but we get these really cool little fanfare in- in- interjections. Um, and have a listen at the end where Marty then decides, I've got a time machine. I can I can change this and, and fix it. And that's where it kind of goes quiet. But really get this sort of bold, noble uh, sort of suspense by the chords overlapping each other and actually rather than being tritones apart in sequence like he actually stacks them and they, they kind of hold and fight each other like as, mm. as, as long held chords it's really quite interesting So have a listen to the chords stacking here. Hmm. So it's, it's almost like, yeah, it's too, it's, mm. it's like being torn in two different ways. Should I, shouldn't I, should I, And we have I? an electronic instrument mm. there. Yeah. Like a, a like keyboard. A, yeah, like, a like, a, like a synth celeste. Yeah, yeah, yeah out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah anyway. Back to romancing the stone days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and of course, the, the the final bit of this sequence is is the absolute favourite, where you kind of get three direct attempts at this theme trying to resolve itself. First time, you know, the cable doesn't reach. Second time, I think the other cable separates. It's all going wrong, and then it finally, you know, third time lucky, as as we put it, and it's the the, the total payoff of the whole film almost. Try. And here we go, getting ready for the last, the last of the hurrah. Here we go. Ah. <laughs> 
We've done it. You know, and so on and so forth. And then the cue kind of finishes very similar to the, the earlier mall chase. But it's real. Uh, it, musically, it just, it just says everything about what is going on yeah. and carries that emotion so perfectly. In your, in your opinion, would you say that this is your favorite sort of climax suite almost from a, from a score? I have a few other candidates in mind, but I'm just, I'm wondering. Oh, look, I, I, I'm so excited about this thing because we're, we're listening to it. That right I, I want to say yeah. yes. I mean, out of all the, you know, sort of six or seven, eight film scores that I've conducted live in concert, this mm. one always gets my blood boiling the most. Yeah, right. Sorry, mm. is boiling a bad term? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah like yeah. <laughs> I, I just get so into it and yeah. it's, mm. like, uh, I'm, it's like I'm driving yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you wow. know, the DeLorean, but faster. <laughs> Yeah, Andrew? Well, I I would have to agree. Like, if I'm honest with myself, all of the ones I've seen live, I think it's different live when you than when mm. you, um, you know, just watch the movie or listen to the soundtrack. Mm. But the this sequence live is, is really breathtaking. Mm. It is one of the few times, because, you know, you've got to remember that I'm in a lot of the rehearsals and, and I see the movie, you know, a hundred times, mm. you know, yeah. um, during rehearsal and then go to all the performances and everything. This movie, um, and we've done lots of them at this mm. point in time, this movie is the only one where I got goosebumps every <laughs> time, yeah. wow. every time in this wow. in this bit. Mm. And, you know, the, the applause from the audience, the... the you know, I've never heard a, a orchestra audience yeah. um, roar like that at the end of this of this yeah. cue. You wow! Know? Yeah. Wow! Mm. And that that last chord, that sort mm. of hurrah, with a, I mean, every time I almost pull my back out because I give it such a <laughs> come on, yeah. <laughs> come on, it's like, yeah, it's like wow. the biggest cue of the brass you've ever. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> my yeah. lower back hurts now thinking about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I think the only other two that come to mind. I mean, they're both Williams, and that's obviously Escape Chase Goodbye from ET. Yeah, the, the, sure. the climax there. Yep. I mean, with the oh yeah, classic. Can you forget about that? Yeah, classic, that's pretty good. Classic story of, of that being edited to the queue yep. rather than yep. the other way around. But yep. I mean, it's an amazing end. But I mean, also, I mean, my uh, my own personal favorite would probably be the end of Empire Strikes Back. I just think there's such thematic unity going on in mm. that sequence and such which particular sequence. Um, the the chasing after Han. Um, oh yeah, the bu- 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 yeah, 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 yep. yeah, yeah. But I don't know. Uh, yeah. Probably, probably something that we can continue to return to if we do those absolutely uh, scores. In uh, the it's a good time mm. to, to suggest listeners write in and tell us your favorite climactic yeah. action music. Sort of, well, it doesn't even need to be action music. No, it doesn't. But I, I think those moments where they bring together all of the elements yeah. that they've been, you know, hinting at throughout the whole film. Um, you know, a lot of movies do that, mm. and yeah. this is sort of one of those showpieces where I mean, you're hearing Doc's theme in there. You're hearing, yeah. you know, you're hearing everything. Yeah, in there. yeah, the yeah, yeah. I mean, you could mm. perform this you know sort of eight minute section by itself and, it and that's be. all you need from the film yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah totally Perfect. shall we move on guys uh, because this this uh, movie wouldn't be complete without actually discussing the songs from it Absolutely so this is not, not the orchestral yeah. score mm. these are the songs and um, for a lot of people actually I have to remind them what the back to the future theme is mm. because they think of the Huey Lewis music first and in actual fact when I was was telling people that we were going to be doing it with the orchestra I had a few blank looks saying is the orchestra going to just play Huey Lewis all night like (laughs) they (laughs) Uh they um, you know which I I think the second you then hum the melody they're like oh god yeah 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 there's all this amazing music but you know really the the you know the I guess the signature tune of this would be the power of love uh, from Huey Lewis And, and let's just remind ourselves shall we
So, is there anything more eighties <laughs> than that synth sound? Ooh. <laughs> yeah, the, the brass synths. Yeah, it screams eightiness mm. in there. Romancing the stone. <laughs> um, oh yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, 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 very true. A different type of eighties, but. So what what happened here is that you have Huey Lewis and the News, um, you know, a really well known band, but not many people talk about them now. I no. must admit, I don't yeah. think they've really, you know, stood the test of time. But these, <laughs> I mean, for me, the, the the Back to the Future songs, the only real songs I know them for these days. Yeah. But anyway, so he, the Huey Lewis, was asked to write a hit song for the for the movie in that sort of whole marketing way where the studio is not necessarily. Um, confident in the marketability of the of the movie, it's a new franchise. People don't know about it. What's you know the quickest way to to get it into people's heads that it's happening is to sort of write a hit song. And so he's he's told to write a song, and he writes this one, "The Power of Love." Now, it's a film about time travel, mm. and <laughs> all it says is the power of love. And what happened is the studio were like a little bit annoyed that it. Didn't have any. It didn't well. First of all, didn't have the name of the movie in the song, because if you're going to do it as a marketing exercise, then um, what actually had to happen is every time they sent it out to the radio stations as, "Hey, can you play this Huey Lewis hit?" They had to say, "But please remember to tell everybody this is from Back to the Future." Right. So it sort of didn't work in the same way that they wanted it to work. But anyway, I'm getting a little bit sidetracked here because, of course, he then writes the um, the next piece, which mm. they play in the uh, credits being, um, uh, what's it called? Back, Back in Time. time. Back in Time. Back yeah. in Time. Um, which I, which I won't, won't play right now. But what I think is sort of interesting about this song within the context of the film is it actually turns up within the film itself quite a few times. So it turns up as uh, it's the very first piece of music that we hear in the in the actual film not the the live version which has all the extra music in there and it's on the it, it plays as Marty sort of Heads off to high school, doesn't it? Yeah, it's when he leaves. Damn, I'm late for school. Yeah, dun, dun. He just kicks into it. And <laughs> yeah. He's on the skateboard. You know, like every little boy's fantasy, just like <laughs> exactly. You know, piggyback on the back of a pickup truck. And at yeah. this yeah. moment, it screams. You know, it, it's a high school movie. It's yeah. a feel good yeah. high school film. And he, of course, heads off to high school. A whole bunch of things happen, but he auditions to be the band that plays is going to be playing for prom night. Mm, okay. And of course, the piece that he auditions on is this. There's some excessive whammy bar usage. Yeah, there is. Um, and of course, uh, you know, maybe younger listeners or younger watchers of this film won't won't know this, but the guy on the megaphone is actually Huey Lewis. Um, I did not know that for like years and years and years. Yeah, and years. yeah, yeah. So he's. I mean, it gets very meta. This mm. this movie. There's there are endless winks to the audience. You know, sort of in in this mm. this way. And of course, Huey Lewis being you know criticised for being a really loud rock musician mm. and then here he is as dressed as an old man saying you're just too darn loud yeah. so um, I mean the, the product placement 
is off the chain in this yeah. film. You know, there's not only is there, it's got its own song within the film and the, the guy who wrote it is in the film. Then it's got endless, you know, there's Pepsi in the background constantly. Mm. You can see the, you know, mm -hmm. the, the logos of everything. But later on, of course, when they, they finally head to 1954, accidentally, sorry, 1955, accidentally head back in time. Of course, we have a situation where, where uh, we're now in a very different sound Scape, I guess, we're 30 years earlier. And the first way that that is signaled to us is when Marty walks into town, he turns the corner into Hill Valley, into the town square, and we get the opening of Mr. Sandman. And now this Mr. Sandman was a 1954 song written by Pat Ballard, uh, but it, I guess it was made famous by the Cordettes. Let's just hear, I guess, the Cordettes version first. Mr. Sandman, bring me a dream. Make him the cutest. So, think about this. Here's something to sort of maybe make you think for a second. Is the amount of time that passed for Marty to the 1950s is the same amount of time now? As to Marty. Mm. So, we're now 30, well, a bit over 30 years now yeah, yep. from, um, from Marty's 1985, from that, that Huey Lewis number. And do you guys think that music has changed as dramatically from now to 1985 as from 1985 to 1955? No. No. Yeah. Well, I, I actually looked up the, the hit song for um, 2015, the exactly mm. 30 years, mm. and it's, oh, God, it's going to go straight from me now. Um, it's the uh, Bruno, Bruno Mars, oh. Bruno oh. Mars um, Uptown Funk, Uptown funk mm. which is sort of in its way a callback to an older style yeah. anyway. Yeah. But I was like, oh, it's not that different, <laughs> you know, when, when you listen to the, the top mm. hits of, of 2015 to, yeah. to 1985. But, yeah, I just think that's sort of cool to think that the same amount of time has actually yeah. happened. And, and if we rebooted the film, yeah. you know, would we be going back to 1985? Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. And would it be that shocking? Yeah, you know, and, if and we, I would also possibly hypothesise that going from 55 back to 25 wouldn't be as dramatic difference as going from 85 yeah, to Yeah, right. So that 30-year that yeah, period like sort from- of vaudeville, showbiz stuff. Yeah. Sandman has an element of that mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. specifically. Um, True. So maybe which era then made the biggest change in music? I mean, 60s. it has to be through that, 60s, 60s, 60s 70s. The Beatles. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> wow. 60, 70. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're moving. You're moving oh, from yeah, whoever. Yeah, you're moving from jazz, yeah. I guess. Jazz influenced mm. things into rock and pop. Yeah, and that period of thirty years through there is such a massive amount yeah. of change. So, mm. so it's so an that, interesting little thing. I think one of the other interesting things about this particular song is just how many movies it's used in. I mean, it's really <laughs> like it, it just you know briefly like getting a list together. Like I'll just I'll take a deep breath and see how many I can get through. Obviously, back to the future. <laughs> okay, but I'm timing you. You're out of time. Nip tuck. <laughs> Groundhog. Day, Philadelphia, Planet 51, Uncle Buck, I saw what you did last summer, Crybaby, Halloween, Halloween 2, uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Family Ties, Doctor Who, Deadpool, etc. Wow. Yeah, okay. It's a lot. Yep. But it's important to also know that they don't use the Cordettes version. It's the most famous version, but they don't use that version. They actually use the version from the Four Aces, um, yeah. which uh, I think is a really interesting choice. And I actually suspect it's for one singular reason. And it's the way this piece starts actually gives you a little bit of a welcome to wonderland yeah. sort of idea. So here's the beginning of the four aces version. Mr. Sandman, 
Mr. Sandman. Bring me a drink. Wow. Yeah, so, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the, you know, that's probably the reason why they chose it. It's that, that harp and that entrance mm-hmm. into you're in another land. And instantly it made me think of you're not in Toto anymore. You're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. Sorry, you're not in Toto anymore, Kansas. Um, and yeah. I, so I actually went back and checked out that yeah. moment when Dorothy enters the Technicolor mm. land of Oz. And I've got that little cue here and I... All I can, I can think of just that magic of her opening the door yeah. and all of a sudden it's colour. Anyway, let's just play it and see if there's any, any similarity there. I don't know. What do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, I can see it. Well, I, I, I heard this. <laughs> that, as soon as I heard the heart, I was like, oh, that's, that's, I was about to go, the Simpsons. And like, Mr. Sandman. Well, no, no, but totally. Like, I mean, there's that, there's that sound in, in, in The Wizard of Oz mm. uh, of that kind of high-pitched 1940s female singing. Like, Close you're harmony. out of the woods, you're mm. out of the Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Which is uh, parodied in the Simpsons movie where yeah. when Bart's riding on his um, skateboard, in the, in the nude that they directly parody that music there so I mean I, I don't know there's a bit of a lineage I think and remember listeners that Dan Godding was a musical freak when he was little and what? he even thought Return of, was it Return of the Jedi was a musical oh yeah that's true <laughs> yeah, yeah that's it was great. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I've got a question for you so they've used Mr. Sandman as the as the iconic 1955 mm-hmm. we're in the 50s now everybody you know we've reset the musical landscape here why do you think because I looked up what were the top hits of 1950 They arrive in November, Mm. so there's almost an entire year of hits that have happened. And one hit, well, there's a lot of hits that came out, but one of them was Bill Haley and the Comets, Rock Around the Clock. Rock Around the Clock. Why did they not use the time thing as the opener for this? What do you think? What a missed opportunity. I know, right? (laughs) Wow. Uh, I I reckon I know why, and it's because... I think it's because of um, the the song that Marty does on guitar later on, the Johnny Be Good. Yeah, I think okay. As a as a as a sort of dramatic effect thing. Yep. You know, what's his line at the end? Like, I guess you guys aren't ready for this. Yeah, but yeah. your kids are gonna love it. Yeah, yeah. So mm. maybe that. I mean, I can't remember how Rock O'Clock goes and, and how rocky it is. Yeah, but maybe mm. it's it's too. I mean, it definitely up tempo that, and that rock backbeat. But I, I guess yeah. it, it, it holds into your idea, Dan, that we're talking to a really squeaky clean Americana here. Yeah, totally. So, Mr. Sandman is, you know, infinitely no more... It's yeah, Elvis exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess Sandman, I mean, it's it's about... I mean, it's about a, yeah. a boy um, or a girl, but... It's the idea that, you know, Sandman dreamlike. It's, he's in mm. a dream in a way and he's walking around in a dream throughout all of that. And this is one of the moments where the music from within the film, because this, this Sandman music is actually coming out of a record store. He looks across the street. They actually very specifically zoom into a speaker, which mm. is playing Mr. Sandman. So this is not, this is diegetic music, music that comes from within the film. And he starts sort of stumbling around the street. And we get this situation where Sandman is actually, I guess, interrupted by the orchestral score because, uh, well, actually, let's just hear what happens. Oh, 
so we're um, we're reminded once again that it comes in with those eerie, creepy strings that sort yeah. of says, actually, this is not mm. squeaky clean. There's something mm. very wrong with this picture. And straight away, we're reminded of time. You yeah. know, the clock strikes and time yep. is is front and centre again. So it's, it's like, yeah, his dream has gone sour. Yeah. Know? Yeah, exactly. Like the, whole, the wholesome yeah, version is, is interrupted. I mean, I, I also thought about that record store as well, because what I really love with time travel films is sort of saying, well, does the internal logic work mm. within this film? And, you know, we, we look over at the, the record store and I, you know, I was thinking about the four aces and why is that record store playing the four aces version of Mr. Sandman? And it could be because the four aces actually had a top, you know, a, a number one hit only a few months earlier. In, in 1955 and it was um, love is a many splendid thing and so I'm wondering mm. if the record store is trying to sell new records of love is a many splendid thing and they're just playing right. some other pieces from <laughs> from the four aces you know maybe that's that's the reason um, <laughs> and also the other cool thing is just on the billboard out the front because you know I'm thinking well is this is sort of like a country town feel in a weird, weird way but this this record store is actually super hip and the reason why I know is because they've got a little sandwich board out the front and it says, just in, uh, the ballad of Davy Crockett and 16 tons. Now, those are two pieces that were uh, made famous by Tennessee Ernie Ford. And in fact, the, um, the ballad of Davy Crockett is played um, when he first goes into the milk bar. He's the diner, yeah. Yeah. And I think actually his, when he ends up being with Lorraine's parents, his Lorraine's brother, I guess Marty's uncle, is wearing a Davy Crockett hat. He's got the. Oh, yeah, he's got yeah, the, yeah, yep, yep. You yep. know, anyway. Um, so there's lots of that sort of, you know, David Crockett thing. And in fact, that was one of the number one hits of, of 1955. But 16 Tons wasn't a hit until December of oh, 1955. So right. these guys have actually picked, they're like, Justin, come and see this new mm. new piece. And they're actually marketing <laughs> this this piece that only becomes famous a month later. So it's they're right on the... No, well, they're right on the on the edge, cutting edge of <laughs> what's new and going to be great. 1955. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> has to be. <laughs> anyway, I think that's sort of a, a really cool thing. But, well, of course, we're going to move forward in the in the film and, and all the way through to the Enchantment Under the Sea dance with uh, the first piece that we hear called Night Train, which is actually a 1951 composition. So once again, we haven't found any pieces here that are after 1955. And it was uh, written by Jimmy Forrest. The problem with this song, Night Train, is that it actually has all sorts of different potential origins, I guess. And a lot of music in the 50s, certainly in the 40s as well, a lot of people just re-recorded other people's songs. Yeah. And depending on what your connections were like with record companies, and probably importantly, whether you were black or white, you sometimes people had hits and sometimes people didn't. And then the person who wrote the tune all of a sudden comes out of the woodwork and says, hey, what the hell is that? I need to be paid for that hit song. Yeah. This isn't quite one of those, but we will have one coming up. Um, but this particular one was... Uh, originally written, like I said, by Jimmy Forrest, but it's from a melody that actually turns up with um, Johnny Hodges, who was the famous saxophone player for the Duke Ellington Band, mm. in, a, in a piece that's called That's the Blues, Old Man. Let's just have a listen to see if you can hear Night Train in here. If you can't pick it yet, it hasn't happened yet. It's coming. It's just the introduction. Here it comes. Mm. 
there we go. And this this actually gets a little more convoluted because Jimmy Forrest was a sax player in the Ellington band as well. And he was a tenor player. Mm. And he would have played this piece in the Ellington band quite a few times. And he sort of went solo, I guess, <laughs> and ended up performing this piece, called it Night Train, renamed it um, off That's the Blues, Old Man. And it became a massive hit. And um, as far as I can tell, there was sort of all sorts of scuffles between Ellington and, <laughs> and Johnny Hodges and stuff like that, who, wow. who was sort of claiming, actually, that's that's my piece. But let's have a listen to the actual uh, the Night Train from, from within the film. So from um, Marvin Berry and, and the, the Starlighters. Starlighters. <laughs> Yeah, so another little juxtaposition, or actually not even a juxtaposition, a a, um, similarity between 1955 and 85. We have two eras that are saxophone heavy. Oh, yeah, true. So we have Huey Lewis, big amount of sax in Mm. there. And then you have, you know, Marvin Berry with sax. Mm. So I'm sort of asking, are these the two Mm. big eras of sax music that you have rock? There was one recently. Oh, what's that? Yeah, with uh, like, you know, Jason Derulio and a whole bunch (gasps) of like dance. Okay, this works even even better. Are we saying that saxophone comes into fashion every 30 years? (laughs) Yeah. Because that would thrill me if that's the yeah, case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, we've just missed this one. So, you know, you just, you're going to go another 30 yeah. years to wait. I'll, like, I'll wait 30 years and I'll get a gig it's again. It's like Haley's Comet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Un- unlike corduroy pants. <laughs> <laughs> now, there is actually, with, with this band, with the Marvin Berry band, it's quite obvious these guys are actually really frustrated jazz musicians. Mm. They're at a high school dance playing a covers gig. So they're playing a whole bunch of tunes that were written years and years before and they sort of look a little bit bored on stage and they go out during their break to get into the car and smoke some um, jazz cigarettes <laughs> and um, they, at, at a certain point the uh, Biff's uh, thugs turn up and interrupt them. They all get out of the car and there's this music playing in the car, um, blasting out. They're all obviously sitting inside smoking and, and listening to this. So, just a super fast bebop yeah. tune. It's actually still a blues, but um, <laughs> they're they're sitting in, inside there listening to jazz. They're not listening to sort of the pop music of the time, mm. which I think sort of really shows that like these are these are out of work jazz musicians who yeah. are just trying to get a gig on the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really cool. And what's really interesting about this cue is that it's actually written. By Alan Silvestri. Really? Yeah. So he, he composed this piece. And, what um, a cool dude. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, that's a nice little piece of uh, diegetic music that was actually composed. I don't have to huh. pay any royalties on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That means, Fantastic. I guess. Now, later on, we have uh, Earth Angel, which is the, the moment in the film where, you know, uh, finally 
Marty's mum and dad get together. And this is actually a piece that is absolutely mired in contested authorship and and copyright. Mm. Um, And I won't bore you too much with it, but in the end, the copyright got awarded to three separate entities, which almost certainly means that this piece was sort of passed around by an awful lot of people and and re-recorded and re-recorded and re-recorded. And in the end, they sort of end up um, uh, landing on, on three people. So, those people were Curtis Williams, who was from the Penguins, which who um, recorded the Penguins, the Penguins, never heard of them, like the monkeys, <laughs> um, but a lot earlier, and also Jesse Belvin and, and Gamal Hodge, totally separate bands, but they all got awarded this. And um, here's the, the the original Penguins version of um, of uh, Earth Angel. And of course, here is the uh, the Marvin Berry version. There's that sax. Yeah. <laughs> don't you think this? Um, don't you think this version feels a lot more modern somehow? Yeah. I was thinking that with the the other version from the film as well. The snare drum is so 1980s. Yeah, Even though right. it's music of the time, it's that big fat mids. You know, no treble or bass, just mids. Yeah, drum. yeah, yeah. And, and there's of course guitar in this version here, which um, really we're, we're coming out of the Bill Haley and the Comets era, where electric guitar is really starting to come in. Mm. Um, Question though, like, are these recordings of? Marvin Berry and the Starlighters, like, were they done in 85 for the film? Yeah, they were. So, you know, recording quality yeah. is, is mm. changed dramatically there. So, I'm sure that's a large part of it. Yep. But, you know, this is this whole sort of me wanting to test whether this really <laughs> is 1955 um, here. But, uh, of course, this is this is the second time that the, the orchestra starts interrupting diegetic music within, mm. the, um, within the film because you have a situation where Marty's mum and dad are dancing. They get um, uh, some idiot... Freckle face, yeah, freckle face guy, yeah, comes in and, and sort of interrupts them, and then Marty starts, you know, I guess disappearing from time, and we have the orchestra starts coming in over the top of it, and when they finally kiss, the orchestra actually swells and doesn't play its own melody, but joins in with Marvin Berry, mm. and thus sort of this, this is apart from the clock tower sequence, mm. this is the other like goosebump magical moment in the film, yeah. Mm. So like, oh, it's glorious. Let's have a it's listen. Glorious. My darling dear, love you. George, aren't you going to kiss me? I, I don't know. Scram, McFly. I'm cutting in. Earth angel, earth angel, the one I adore. Hey, boy, you all right? I can't play. Excuse me.
So is that a musical version of, it's not breaking the fourth wall, but it's yeah. the music has broken into the film, mm. the orchestral score. And I actually think that's quite unusual. Yeah, it's breaking breaking mm. the diegetic wall, I guess. Yeah. I don't know if that's a natural yeah, phrase. Yeah, yeah. But, um, I was thinking, listening to that, of any other examples in film where the exact same thing has happened. And I, I I can't off the top of my head. Mm. Well, I mean, there are a few examples of like where, you know, the music picks up on a theme that's being played within the film. Like, um, oh gosh, D- Dario Marinelli's Pride and Prejudice where they're playing a little bit of a, of a, of a waltz at the ball okay, yep, and then yep. the orchestra repeats that later. And, I mean, okay. you know, small things, but I don't know if there's anything quite as... Yeah. But something where they end up accompanying yeah. the diegetic music. No, and yeah. I think if that didn't happen, if like, you know, you had that kind of... Sc- scratchy tension strings and then they just refaded the song in with the band and they mm, kissed yeah it wouldn't have the same impact no it, it needed to go full yeah. hollywood in yeah, there. yeah. And, and once again, and again really that's your, that's the nod yeah and it's and it's cementing in that idea mm. that the orchestra there is to make every moment bigger than it actually is yeah um, and, and i mean it's also terrific uh sound editing there as well i mean you hear how you hear the, the voice of the singer sort of pulling back and having yep. more echo and uh, yeah it's it's really really nicely done yeah mm. no i think it's a great it's little like moment his life's going down the toilet and his life's fading away yeah yeah and we we you know i spoke earlier about how tightly edited you know this this movie is and, and nothing's wasted i think if you were to honestly say what is the one wasted moment of just we're going to do some things because mm. it's fun it would have to be Johnny Be Good. <laughs> Johnny Be Good doesn't actually add anything to anything. Mm-hmm. I think it's just there for a joke. And in actual fact, I think it, what it serves in the movie is is a musical way for everyone to relax, to have some fun. We've had nothing but tension up until this point. Yep. And, you know, finally they got there. They got He got his parents together. Everything's fine, at least up until that moment. Mm. And now we get to celebrate a little bit as an audience. And we get to sort of just have fun with time travel. You know, so I've got a question for you. We've got the Johnny Be Good moment, and as people who are familiar with the film know, Marvin Berry runs to the phone halfway through the song, calls up his friend, his brother, sorry, Chuck, or his cousin or something, Chuck, yeah. as in Chuck Berry, the composer of Johnny Be Good, and says, "Hey, Chuck, you know that new sound you've been looking for? Listen to this." And he holds the phone out <laughs> to the stage while they're playing Johnny Be Good. Now, Johnny Be Good was actually written in 1958, so Chuck Berry sat on this for about three years. <laughs> <laughs> now, I've got a question for you. Given I love time travel paradoxes. We're gonna go. I'm gonna go through and give you some examples, and I, I want to ask you the question: Who composed Johnny Be Good? Was it Chuck Berry, mm-hmm. or was it Marty McFly? <laughs> so, where before you answer, right. we're gonna go through and and have a listen to a few little elements here. So, mm-hmm. what I decided to do is once again making sure that everything's totally authentic. We've got Marvin Berry. They're they're from 1955. They've they've heard Rock Around the Clock. They've heard all sorts of different music up until that point, and they're obviously jazz musicians. So, I thought to myself, let's you know when he sort of says it's a blues, it's a blues in B, and he sort of kicks off in this sort of rocking way and I'm thinking where is their reference you know what are they going to say because how do they react to that Mm. Um, and the most obvious way is well they're probably very familiar with Rock Around the Clock so let's have a listen to Rock Around the Clock One, two, three o'clock four o'clock rock five, six, seven o'clock eight o'clock rock nine, ten, eleven o'clock twelve o'clock rock we're going to rock around the clock tonight glad rags on join me home now you'll notice in the bass line here, it's a what's called a walking bass. It's a bass that goes 
which is a jazz thing at the end of the day, but a jazz thing rocked up. Let's have another listen. Yeah, so so Marvin Berry, that's where they've come from. Now, they would have known that walking bass thing from jazz, mm-hmm. um, and they would have been very familiar with Rock Around the Clock. So, of course, the way that they respond to Marty saying, well, let's play Johnny Be Good, is in a very similar fashion. So you can hear that that walking bass line again, and um, of course it's supposedly um, Michael J. Fox and Marty McFly singing that, but it's actually um, a singer called Mark Campbell, um, who's from Jack Mack and the Heart Attack, um, who had a sort of a, a oh, rocking yeah. <laughs> a rocking band from Tennessee um, in in the eighties. So they've obviously just hit up somebody yeah. locally, I guess, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. asked them if they could if they could do the the performance, and then you the know, most important song in the film. Yeah, obviously. yeah, exactly. Um, we'll, but he's we'll got pay that you in exposure, like yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. But he's got that really young sounding voice, mm. you know, which I think mm. works with, with Marty. So you've got that sort of version. That's what they come up with. And I thought it would be worthwhile listening to what actually Chuck Berry ends up releasing. So he's heard this on the phone. Okay. <laughs> we assume. Yeah. He's then, I guess, remembered it. Three years later, he's sat on it probably to make sure there's no question mark around copyright. He's just seen the Earth Angel people <laughs> get done in. And <laughs> he's like, I don't want this Calvin Klein guy to come asking yeah, yeah. for a royalties <laughs> later on. So he's waited a few years for everyone to forget about it. And Chuck Berry releases this. So did you guys get the... Yeah the bass line at the beginning there yeah, let's it's um like double speed yeah it is double speed let me um uh let me quickly cue that up again for you it goes twice as fast have a listen Yeah, and I think it's that very minor difference that actually shows you what has changed in those three years. He's still playing a shuffle drum beat, mm. still playing like a swing beat, but it's that mm. you know, like it's much more rocky. Mm. And it's it's really being credited. Johnny B. Good is sort of credited as, as the beginning of genuine R and B, rhythm and blues. Mm. And I guess the rhythm part potentially being that that sort of faster, more frantic sort of style. So then I thought to myself, well, maybe this is in favour of Chuck Berry has written Johnny mm-hmm. Be Good because he's got a different version mm. on this. Mm-hmm. Or has he been influenced by Marty? And he's just iterated on it. So then I thought to myself, well, he's got he's on the phone. He's listening to it. Now this is a 1955 phone. Speakers and microphones back <laughs> in that day were terrible with bass end. Mm. They weren't really good on the bass end, good on the high end. Not great on the bass end. So I thought I would find out what it um uh, Johnny Be Good by Marvin Berry and Marty McFly sounds like wow. with all the bass taken out. Wow. Here it is. Sounds There's like no bass, right? Yeah. Sounds like the Chuck Berry version. There's yeah. no bass. Yep. Impressive so work. I reckon he has not heard the bass. Yeah. 
and gone, well, I don't know how that works. And he's written mm-hmm. a new baseline to mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So, my question to you both, who wrote Johnny Be Good? Did Marty McFly write Johnny Be Good mm-hmm. or did Chuck Berry write Johnny Be Good? Chuck Berry wrote it. Chuck Berry? Well, he's my conundrum. He only gets called in the movie like halfway through the song. So, how did, oh. how did, how did, he, how did he get the opening lick? Well, that is also true, isn't it? Good point. Yeah. Riddle me this, Batman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, he only gets, he doesn't get the opening lick then. All he hears is a blues being mm. played with a guy playing guitar over the top of it mm-hmm. and singing a bit. Mm. So, are we prepared then to say that Chuck Berry wrote it? Because how else would he have known that opening lick? Yeah. I mean, my my thinking was that he wrote it because even with the conflicting timelines of the movie, the person who first encounters it as an already authored piece is still Marty. In 1985. Yes. Yeah. So even before he went back, it would yeah. have had to be a written. Yeah. He would have had to have written it. Without ever hearing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But but for our timeline, for our timeline. So, Mar- you know, Marty McFly has his own timeline. Yep. Yep. Mm. Yep. Our timeline, Marty McFly has already been back and forth. Mm. In our timeline, did Marty write it or did Chuck Berry write it? But... <laughs> but but it, but in but in Marty's timeline, there's there, it's it's more like it's not so much you can say that Chuck definitely wrote it as you can say that Marty definitely didn't write it. Yeah, right. My brain hurts. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think Chuck Berry wins. I think because yeah. of that opener, I think you've yeah, hit the nail on the head yeah, there, yeah, Nick. That yeah. that he's actually he's totally written it because he still came out with that version, having not heard all of it on the phone. And and you know he uses a very similar opening uh, uh, rollover Beethoven as well. So oh it's, yeah, it's right. Like his Style. Yeah, okay. Um, there we go, guys. That's the end of the song. Sorry we, it took so long, but um, I thought such a, a major part of this score is actually mm. checking out all of those songs. Um, yeah, totally. I mean, it's such a major part of the movie as well, that sort of high school, you know, I mean, that's the, it's almost like the film within a film and going back to the beginning, it's, um, it's, 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 it's that influence from that Spielberg Lucas era because a lot of this comes from American Graffiti as well, which predates Happy Days, I should say, as well. So yeah, that, right. that sort of high school, 50s American drama. Anyway. Yeah. And um, I guess that brings us to the end, guys. What do you reckon? I think it's a great place to Great place to, to start on a paradox. Definitely. Anyway, I hope everyone at home enjoyed uh, this uh, little analysis of Back to the Future. And if you did enjoy it, go ahead and press subscribe if you're an iTunes person um, and write us a review. Um, those things all re- always really help. And I've seen a lot of reviews on there, which have been really positive so far, which we're really thankful for. So, so uh, thank you for that. And if you've got any friends who uh, may be interested in Back to the Future, but haven't really thought about the score very much before, and I think they're probably Probably quite a few people haven't thought about how effective and amazing this score is. Mm. Yeah, go ahead and, and um, put them over to us over there. We'd, we'd love to sort of get the word out there. And of course, uh, you can get in touch with us on uh, Facebook at Art of the Score and also on Twitter and Instagram, also at Art of the Score. And we're more than happy to sort of get back to you. You might have some of the answers that we've had um, questions in earlier in the time. And, and actually, if you want to weigh in on the whole paradox thing, if you've yeah. got a, an even nerdier way to work out who did what first I'm all ears because I I really love that stuff so until next time I'm Andrew Pogson that's Dan Golding glad to have used all of the gigawatts and he's Nicholas Buck like I always told you you put your mind to it you can accomplish anything (laughs) and this was Art of the Score